What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Today on What Got You There Sean sits down with Dr. Kelly Starrett Kelly Starrett is a coach physical therapist, author, and speaker who has revolutionized how athletes think about human movement and athletic performance. His 2013 release, Becoming a Supple Leopard, has become a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. Kelly and his work have been featured in Tim Ferriss's 4-Hour Body, Competitor Magazine, Inside Triathlon, Outside Magazine, Details Magazine, Power Magazine, and The CrossFit Journal. Before starting his own physical therapy practice at San Francisco CrossFit, one of the first 30 CrossFit affiliates, he practiced performance-based physical therapy at the world-renowned Stone Clinic. In his current practice, Kelly continues to focus on performance-based orthopedic sports medicine with an emphasis on returning athletes to elite-level sport and performance. Kelly's clients have included Olympic gold medalists, Tour de France cyclists, world and national record-holding Olympic lifting and power athletes, CrossFit Games medalists, ballet dancers, military personnel, and competitive age division athletes. In this episode, Kelly discusses his take on a healthy diet and movement. He talks about some of the people who have had the biggest impact on him and what inspires him on a daily basis. They cover the sitting epidemic and what he and his wife, Juliet, are doing to combat that at their daughter's school in Northern California. Kelly also discusses the damage that flying can cause on the human body and what you can do about it. This is one of the most jam-packed episodes of What Got You There, and this will be sure to be a favorite of anyone interested in health and wellness. Today, What Got You There is being fueled by Soniva Super Coffee. Soniva provides an organic bottled coffee blended with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil for all-day energy. Grab a bottle at your local Whole Foods market or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Are you looking to finish the latest thriller, such as The Girl on the Train, while you're at the gym or in the car? Well, now you can. For listeners of What Got You There podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check this out. Head over to www.audibletrial.com forward slash what got you there to choose from over 180,000 titles to select the book you want to hear next. Kelly, how are we doing today? Oh man, really, really good. Awesome. I love the energy. Excited to have you on. What got you there? So something I always ask my guests is how you start your day, but I know you're someone who's so good at down-regulating at night. What's your evening routine like to set up a next day success? Uh, well, you know, here's the deal. You know, we get to see behind the curtain of a lot of best practice, you know? So imagine, you know, my Olympic level monks, you know, Food is prepared for them. They get to train in this great environment. They can, you know, get massages and therapy and train twice a day. And it's very simple, but it's great because then we have this best case Formula One concept. Comma, then there's the rest of us who have jobs and families and and Game of Thrones to watch. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, let's, let's, let's be real. And, um, you know, the key here is what we see is that um, – my, my, we have developed something we call the ready state concept. And when we look at the psychology of follow through or adherence or compliance, 
what we tend to see is that it's all or nothing for people. And as soon as you start creating checklists of things to do, what we find is that people you know, can't seem to wrap their head around doing them all. And if they haven't done them all or they've only done 70% and they failed, and it really creates this really strange psychology of, of people not sort of following through on best practice. Instead, we try to focus on, hey, look, there are behaviors during different times of the day that are easy to cluster into periods where you can actually have control of your day, you know, and, and some of those, those periods are before your kids get up or before you leave for work, you know, cause we say basically once you're in the car, all bets are off. Like mm-hmm. you now are, are, uh, you know, you're, you're, you are working the second you leave the house and maybe you can drink some water or move around a little bit at work, but you know, there's some, there's some time in the morning where you can really kind of get ahead and start to control your life a little bit. And one of those other periods tends to be right before you go to bed in the evening. And so, you know, we have a couple, you know, strong opinions. And one of them is, you know, we have done a lot less drinking as we've gotten older. And the reason we stopped drinking as much, not that we were heavy alcoholics, mind you, but, you know, it's, it's easy as an adult to have a glass of wine as part of, your, uh, part of your routines that we found that it really was affecting the quality of our sleep. And so now we save, you know, the, the glass of wine uh, or the alcohol when we are hyper-rested when we are, know that we can sleep in, when we know that you know, we don't have extremely hard training blocks coming up. And so we look at it as, you know, like, for example, when I travel on the road, I don't drink because I just can't handle it, right? And, and, and that's usually sort of counterintuitive to people. Hey, I'll have a glass of wine and help me, help me downregulate, but it actually affects our sleep. We found that caffeine after four o'clock, you know, you can fall asleep, but the quality of your sleep isn't very good. And and then it starts to around the sort of the bedtime. We have a few we have a few you know solid rules. And one of those rules is we try to really manage sleep hygiene. We try to uh, really you know control the uh, control the room as best we can. Can we make it dark? Can we make it cold? You know, can we uh, you know can we sleep in a quiet place? And the idea here is you know we don't have to think about that because that's part of our regular routine. And so um, one of the things that we feel strongly about, hang on one second, I have to step outside. One of the things we feel strongly about is that you know, we want to try to do 10 minutes of soft tissue work before we go to bed. And that means before we go to the bedroom or transition to the bedroom. So what we do is that as we're chilling out, hanging out as a family, we try to do a little rolling. You know, we try to hang out. Um, I love to sauna uh, or hot tub before we go to bed you know, and, uh, that seems to also, you know, allow us to relax. But, uh, one of the things that I have, you know, in my bedroom that I'm a huge fan of is this thing called the chili pad and it circulates cold water underneath my sheet all night long. So, you know, really it's about, can I control my body temperature? Can I create a routine where I'm not fighting my physiology with alcohol or caffeine and I've optimized and controlled the sleeping environment, so I'm getting the same experience for months and months and months. And what ends up happening is my body begins to understand and recognize you know, that there are these kind of pre-contact cues about what's about to happen next. Does that make sense? Oh, perfect sense. And I, I love how you control those variables. And, and, and what we find then is that if you are able to control the density of your sleep. Sometimes you can't control the amount of sleep, but you control the quality of the sleep that you can get. And lo and behold, what ends up happening then is that, you know, you need a little bit less coffee in the next day. And at four o'clock, you're not looking for a bump. 
and you're not trying to, you know what I mean? I think one of the mistakes is with people, sometimes it's, we fail to see how interconnected our behaviors are and sometimes how coupled the choices that we make are relative to some of the, our behaviors. So let me give you an example. I've, I've toyed with intermittent fasting for a long time, especially when I'm not in a competitive training, competitive, you know, you know, competition cycle. And so, but sometimes what I would find is that if I fasted till noon, I would train early afternoon and I wouldn't have great training sessions because I'd be under calorie. Right. And then lo and behold, um, what I'd find is that I would try to make up those calories because I'd be starving. I'd eat an early dinner with my family and then eat again at 11 o'clock. And then I'd get up at six and I would have my first kind of coffee with, you know, with my layered superfood coconut creamer, which I love. But then that was only seven hours of non-eating. And what I was finding was that I was also disrupting my sleep because I'd wake up hungry. And that's an example of just sort of the error and not relating to or understanding how the choices I'm making now set me up for success in a little bit later on in the time period. And the, the example we've already talked about is the coffee. If I have coffee after four, I need it because I'm sleepy. Lo and behold, it messes up the quality of my sleep and then I beget more sleepiness, right? Yep. I mean, you mentioned the quality of the sleep. Are you tracking this or are you just going all on feel? Well, you know, what I'll tell you is that um, uh, our good friends, Brian McKenzie and Dr. Andy Galpin just wrote a book called Unplugged. And we feel strongly that um, data helps us understand and become more conscious and aware of our processes, right? But one of the things that we find is that a lot of times people are in absolute denial or not in touch with the fact that their behaviors aren't what they seem to be. For example, we had um, a high-level Olympic track and field team that we work with and support. And one of our friends was doing some work with them. And they, he said, how many of you guys sleep enough? And everyone raised their hands, right? Because they're all Olympians. And they're actually all very mature Olympians and well-trained. And, you know, and, he, and they're like, well, he's like, how do you know they get enough sleep? Because they're like, because we're Olympians. And we know it's important. And he's like, well, how much are you getting? They're like, <laughs> nine and a half minimum. You know, they're like nine and a half, like, you know, because we're world champions. We, we have Olympic gold medals. He said, well, let's just track that. So when he actually tracked it, I found out that not a single one of the Olympic athletes, the 32 athletes, actually got enough sleep. They were sleeping less than eight hours. And so sometimes, again, it helps us to use tech to track, to become aware and bring consciousness to our patterns. But, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily, I, I don't track. What I know is that I try to be in the bed in the nines. And if I get in bed in the nines, then I set myself up for at least getting eight hours of sleep. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. And what I find is that a lot of times, you know, now I know, you know, I know that these are the processes that help me sleep better. And if I go to bed in the nines, I'm going to be set. And, um, you know, my wife tracks, she, she uses a withings and loves it. She loves to track the kind of the sleep that she's getting and see the trends. And then, uh, you know, she also uses that for activity during the day. And, and, you know, and I think that's the second part of the thing that we try to do in the morning is we try to sneak in a little activity, you know, and that for us, usually that means walking our girls to school. I've heard you mention that. So by the time we get, yeah, by the time we get back by eight o'clock, we've already walked a 5k. What's the, um, what, what's the setup you guys did with some of the parents at your school? Don't you guys have a walking program with your kids now? Yeah. We created a walking school bus just because we realized that people were not 
they, you know, we live in a little neighborhood and people were driving their you know, kids to school. And we just thought that was ridiculous. It's a, it's a mile. And all the, you know, um, we had a relationship with Nike Fuel Band. And one of the, they gave us some fuel bands. And one of the things we did was we threw some on our kids. And uh, as, we, as you know, as we became a little more interested in sort of the sedentary epidemic of our children. And when our kids walked to school, they would, you know, during the course of the day, they get eight to 10,000 steps. On rainy days, when we didn't walk to school, they were getting two to 3,000 steps. They just, weren't, they just weren't moving around enough. So, you know, one of the things that we're, we've come to realize is that the role of non-exercise activity is hugely important. And one of the, you know, and I, I want to be clear, that's non-exercise activity. That's just movement. It's walking. It's sort of being active. It's, it's gardening. It's taking off the trash. It's just moving more, right? A movement practice and training are different ideas, but just this non-exercise activity is, is crucial. And in some of the ways that our advanced ninja friends have used this, and even some of the elite military groups, is they find that guys are, are not having, who are having problems falling asleep and staying asleep, even though they're training during the day, aren't actually accumulating enough sort of movement debt, as it were, right? They're, they're, not, they're not putting enough movement into the bank. And they use... Um, a great band, which I'm a huge fan of, it's called the Ready Band, and it's made by a, a company called Fatigue Science. And it only tracks two things. It tracks sleep quality you know, through movement, and their algorithms are good, and it, and it tracks movement, and that's it. It's a simple little black band. It looks like a, an, an Armstrong Livestrong band. And uh, what I really like about it is that it stays charged for two weeks. Hmm. That's my favorite part of the whole thing. Yeah, gotta love but that. But what, what we find is that you know, a lot of people now have become very sophisticated around the nuances of nutraceuticals and you know, nootropics, and they're they're trying to tweak and hack and optimize, and they're counting macros, and they're doing all these you know where they're wearing these glasses, and they're doing all these very fancy things, and sometimes we lose track of what's really important and moving more during the day, downregulating. Falling, you know, staying asleep and, and, and focusing on the density of my sleep. Those things aren't sexy and are actually pretty easy to manage and pay huge dividends. Then when you start adding the turmeric and the, you know, the heart rate variability testing and all that stuff, you can really start to see the impacts of, of those small wrenches when we already have turned the big ones. So you think the biggest problem right now is just the sedentary lifestyle of people and not moving enough? I think that's one of the components to it. You know, I think I think we, we can give ourselves a grade. You know, if we're the general fitness performance community, you know, this is really the, the laboratory of human function. Really, it's what it is. It's, it's moved beyond, you know, vanity abs and, you know, and, and bro culture. And it really is this place where we're seeing that, hey, look, here are nutrition, you know, interventions that are varied and work really well at reducing body composition and controlling cortisol, right? I mean, and, and whatever that looks like, you know, from John Berardi to, you know, paleo basics to, you know, I mean, you, there's a lot of ways to turn those knobs, right? And, you know, and I think what we're seeing now is that uh, we have a pretty good understanding of what good movement practices look like. And we're starting to see you know, what are really good practices that support elite level sports and performance. And we should be able to take those things backwards into the regular lives of, of the people who matter the most. You know, it's like we're, we're in this sports laboratory, but the only reason it's a laboratory is because we're going to actually apply those lessons 
And what we see is the environment has changed out from underneath the average person. And there's no such thing as an average person, but you get the idea. And that means that, hey, we're spending a lot more time in front of the screen. We're driving a lot more. The way we interact and engage and, you know, I already made a Game of Thrones joke, but, you know, this is we're, we're the way our entertainment looks a lot different and that we're sort of unconsciously becoming a lot more sedentary. And by sedentary, I just mean not moving. Right. And we can be really clear in our definition of that. Harvard defines sedentary as falling below one and a half metabolic equivalents of sort of resting metabolic activity. So one and a half metabolic equivalences is sort of the threshold for sedentary behavior. And that means that laying down is a sedentary behavior, sitting in a chair is a sedentary behavior, it, because your body starts to like, just it costs less to run your body. As soon as you stand up, you're automatically above one and a half metabolic equivalents. And you know, they further go on and say, hey, look, any, any activity that's underneath one and a half metabolic equivalents is sedentary. And by the way, you need to limit those activities in total to six or less hours a day. And by the time most of us aggregate all of the sitting from the commute, from the board meetings, from the, the principals, the meeting at school to, you know, watching a little Netflix and chilling with your wife, whatever it is. And what turns out that a lot of that means that we're not actually being the human beings we're supposed to be. And we're not expressing the physiology the way it's supposed to be expressed. And fortunately, there's a lot of ways to get in around that, you know, biking, walking, running, you know, moving, swimming, playing, um, and, you know, walking your dog. And I think, I think when we start to view our behavior in those lenses, then we, we start to see that a lot of the light switches start to get turned back on in the human being. And then we don't, it's not so much effort to just, you know, change, you know, we don't have to work so hard to, to, to be so aesthetic in our, you know, our eating, you know, we don't have yeah. to, you know what I mean? If, if, if you're moving more, here's an example, you know, my wife, we have a little calculator on our website of stand up kids. And, uh, you know, when, when Juliet, my wife, who's, you know, 44 and, um, when she just works at a moving desk, not a sitting desk, but a moving desk during the day, she burns an additional hundred thousand calories a year. And um, I don't know the last time you tried to diet out 100,000 calories, <laughs> but that's a lot. And for me, I don't look at it that way. I look at it the fact that I can eat an additional 100,000 calories of ice cream a year and it's still net zero, right? <laughs> that's, that's a freakish amount of ice cream. And, um, you know, when we apply this to kids, what we see is that our, you know, and remember, we hold that, you know, techniques and ideas and concepts, you know, are robust and universal when they apply to all cohorts, right? They have to apply to all stratas of the, the demographic. And, you know, when we see that kids are not moving as much as they should and are adopting these sort of sedentary positions, and what we start to see is fundamental change in their biomechanics and the expression of those biomechanics. We see downregulation in their, in their physiology. And what the research has shown is that kids who don't sit at school but are, have the option to move and move around um, can burn an additional 35% more calories a day. And so, I mean, go, I mean, remember when Jamie Oliver came into the States and he, and he railed against like pizza for breakfast? Well, it was really difficult to pry the pizza out of people's hands and soda out of people's hands because we know from Lustig and the, the physicians out there that, you know, that's deep programming. It's really, I mean, sugar is a drug and 
And one of the things that we can do to combat that drug is to just instead of just always having a battle to, you know, which is going to take a long time to get it out of our hands, is just go ahead and flip on the other side and say, well, let's spend a little bit more without having to spend anymore. I mean, all you have to do is not sit down. All you have to do is move around. All you have to do is stand at work or stand during public transportation and just can I get engaged in a little bit more movement during the day? And, you know, and that's what we find out in those activity trackers. It gives people a nice baseline to say, hey, look, 10,000 steps is not a magic number. It's a magic amount of activity during the day. And I think that's the way to think about it. I mean, you mentioned stand-up kids and what you and Juliet are doing in the school systems. You want to give the listeners a little bit more of a preview of what you guys actually do in your daughter's school system to encourage more of this yeah. stand-up lifestyle? Well, how about, um, let's not say stand up because that's sort of a red herring. It's movement, right? Gotcha. It's a movement lifestyle. And, um, you know, a couple of years ago, we realized, you know, I did a Google talk in 2010 about uh, sort of how to change the workplace into an environment where you could actually thrive physically at work. Like you should be able to get skinny at work, feel better at work, eat better at work, you know, and, and there are little behaviors, you know, and, and things that everyone can relate to. Look, if you want everyone in your office to eat donuts and chocolate, you know what you should bring into the office? Donuts and chocolate. If you want people to eat fruit and vegetables, guess what you should put out? Fruit and vegetables. I mean, it really is that simple, right? I mean, we look at, you know, the psychology of choice making and choice fatigue. And eventually, if it's five o'clock in the afternoon and I'm tired and I walk past a ball, you know, a a jar full of chocolate, guess what I'm gonna reach for? Just because I'm a human being and I just don't have the willpower at the end of the day to do that. You know, and you know, I think we said it a long time ago in Rob Wolf's book. I was like, look, if 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 I don't wanna, you know, if I don't wanna have a gambling addiction in Vegas, step one, don't go to Vegas. <laughs> I mean it's for me it, it's that easy. You know, if I have cookies in the house, I, I don't have to choose to eat cookies. I'm gonna eat the cookies. If there are no cookies in the house, I don't eat the cookies. So um, what we realized then was that, uh, you know, around sort of this, we were seeing that we could change the workplace so that we saw fewer workplace-related injuries. Um, you know, the, the, the research shows and supports that the office worker has the sort of the highest musculoskeletal injury rate out there in terms of repetitive stress injury and chronic low back pain and some of these other things. And what we realized, again, was that with small tweaks, we could really change that environment so people were thriving at work. And seeing work is not something to survive, but a place to sort of get ready for the rest of your life so that you could come out of work and sort of not be as compromised, right? And we realized that we hadn't applied those, that level of thinking to our children. And lo and behold, you know, what we were seeing was that we were seeing our kids basically sedentary all day long. And, you know, and in our school system, we live in Northern California and our kids are lucky because they get like one to two hours of PE a week, right? <laughs> we actually have a PE program. And uh, it turns out that that's not anywhere close to the recommended amount of activity kids are supposed to get during the day. And um, places like, you know, um, places like Norway and Canada are recommending kids sleep sit less than a total of two hours total during the day and, um, and act and have like, you know, two hours of, of aerobic activity running around. And so, you know, all, all the, what we're, we were seeing is sort of a confluence of a lot of research coming into the fact that kids weren't learning optimally that they're, we were seeing that, you know, childhood obesity was unchecked, et cetera, et cetera. And lo and behold, when we, we approached our, our principal about 
swapping out the school from sedentary desks to an environment that allowed for more movement, she was right on board. And and then Stepwise came along, and our uh, our daughters with the first all moving non sedentary desk school in the world. And these desks are individually adjusted for each child, which allows them to lean and prop themselves up. And they all have a fidget bar, which imagine like being in a bar in the Captain Morgan pose, but your foot can pivot back and forth. So kids were in constant motion. And they were allowed to sit on the ground and work too. So the the idea was that they gave these kids movement autonomy, and you know they all did better, and there were no hiccups. And now we have about sixty thousand kids in the United States standing as a function of stand up kids. We're part of Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative, and you know it's it's slowly it it seems like a really radical idea until you see it in practice. And then what we realized was the negative side effect of, of this is that the teachers kind of got pissed, some of the teachers, because they were getting through all of their schoolwork almost a month earlier than they used to be because the kids were so efficient, the learning was so much better, there were so, few, so many fewer distractions, and that was really, it was changing the work environment. We were seeing that kids were having fewer d- disciplinary problems. We had boys, you know, families come up to us and say, look, my my son was in the principal's office six times last year, and this year, it's no problem. And that's just because they had the, the autonomy to move. So, you know, that seems crazy. And then, and then you start to think, well, as human beings, what were we designed to do? We were designed to be sort of be in constant motion all the time. And it's very simple. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash what got you there. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I'm a huge fan of Audible and definitely recommend checking it out. If you're looking for a way to stay energized throughout the entire day, grab a bottle of Suniva Super Coffee. Suniva is something I drink on a daily basis. It's an organic bottled coffee blend with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil, which provides me with clean, all-day energy. Head to your local Whole Foods or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Suniva was founded by three college athletes who are brothers and wanted a cleaner way to stay energized throughout the entire day. I mean, it's frustrating because you say it seems so easy, which it truly is at its deepest core, but so many people fight you on this. And I mean, I just love seeing you guys implement this, changing 60,000 kids' lives. I mean, I've started to stand so much more throughout my workday and just my overall health, forget the calories, my overall health and well-being, I just feel so much more effective throughout the day. Yeah, and I think what's nice about this is, um, you know, the problem is, I'll just point a finger at the ugly physical therapist here. Like, we're like, there's no research to say that, you know, posture, poor posture, you know, causes pain. We're like, who's talking about that? Now, I'm not talking about pain. You know, I'm talking about function. And what I can do is I can go in and, and measure people who sit in a flex position and tell you that, you know, we're seeing downregulation of the, the, the indigenous uh, functions, capacities of the, of the body. You're seeing altered breathing patterns. You're seeing the pelvic floor doesn't work. You're seeing shortened hips. You're seeing stiffness in the T-spine. You're seeing changes in short neck flexors, and that's causing people to grind their teeth. You're seeing that people can't focus and concentrate. I mean, choose something that matters to you. You know, we there was a a good um, piece of research done that came out last year through our friend Dr. Mark Benden of Texas A&M, who's our chief researcher in this area, and uh, they did an intervention where there was a call center. 
and the people who there was easy to track productivity at the call center because if they call and make a sale, that's a one. If they call and don't make a sale, that's a zero, right? So very simple to track productivity in this way. Normally tracking productivity in, in workplaces is a little bit more nuanced and complicated. But when they flip to these movement desks, and you'll notice that I'm purposely not saying standing because it's not just standing, it's a movement desk. What that did was it gave the people the autonomy and the option to move around more. And they saw a two to one increase, a 50% increase in their sales volume, which resulted in six months of a $40 million increase in sales. And they didn't want to let the researchers publish the research because they thought it was such a competitive advantage that their people were more engaged and they were functioning better because they weren't sitting as they were selling. Hmm. I mean, I know I have a lot of entrepreneurs, um, business owners here, so I know they're going to love that statistic. Is there a specific desk you recommend? I don't know if you have an affiliation with any or just ones you like. Well, I wish we did, but uh, we think that would be a conflict of interest. What we what we think is, you know, fundamentally, you know, we get a lot of requests that people say, hey, my 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 employer needs a note to say that I can stand up. And I'm like, yeah, it's not really true. You don't really have to ask your employer to use the bathroom, right? You're you're a big boy. You're a big girl. But what's what we're seeing is that should it be the employer's responsibility to spend a million dollars to retrofit the office? Well, eventually we'll get there. But in the meantime, it's your responsibility to make the environment fit you. It's not someone else's job. So, you know, what we say is that, hey, if you go to IKEA or even stack an Amazon box up on your desk, you can begin to instantly change your working station, you know, by, uh, you know, just hacking your way out with an IKEA desk and some stack of books. And you can begin to alter your environment so that it fits you. And what we want people to understand is that, you know, if you stand up and flip your hands so that they're parallel to the ground, right? So your elbows are bent at 90 degrees. If you measure the height from your elbow to the ground and then go up one inch, that's the height that your standing desk should be. We also want people to understand that it's not a standing station until you have a place to put your foot. So you've got to be able to get one foot up. And when you take one foot up, you actually take a little bit of the extension load out of the spine, and then you just constantly change your, your shape a little bit. So there are a lot of good desks that we really like. The Vera desk is cheap. You know, it gives you some variability in your movement. Um, you know, and you can just retrofit it and it's not ugly. And uh, so there's a lot of really good options available to us. But um, one of the cases that I, I, you know, one of my favorite case studies is this guy was like, hey, man, they're really pushing back. And I was like, no problem. Just get a box like a, a meat box, like it should have really ugly, should have be like covered in duct tape and like meat juice stains and put that on your desk. <laughs> and, and he did. And literally within a week, he had a new workstation because they were like, you can't have that. And he's like, sorry, this is all I can afford. <laughs> all I can afford is this bloody meat box, but it's okay because I'm happy. So but the idea here is, you know, we want to create an environment where you can move more. We love to have bar stools. Bar stools are a place to be able to lean, and it turns out perching is really good. You're still weight-bearing. You're leaning against the stool. You can put your foot up. You can open up your hips. And what's happening is we're giving you permission to do a lot more movement during the day and that there's you know, not an idealized standing position. There are principles that we want to engage in. And what we find is that you know, if we put – one is if we put people in the right environment that fits them, then they'll thrive better. Two is that, you know, it may take a little, little practice and habituation until you become competent enough at it. So, you know, what most of us do, because we're all type A go-getters, you know, I don't think anyone doesn't describe themselves that way, is that we're like, I'm all in, you know, 
And, uh, you know, I'm just going to stand 20 hours a day and move and you're just cooked, you know? So <laughs> it takes a while. We, we say train like a marathon. So today just try to stand and move 20, 20 additional minutes. Right. And then, and then just hang out there 20, 30 minutes this week. And then next week add 10 minutes and then if it feels good, you know, at, go bump up to an hour. And what you'll find is that, you know, pretty quickly th- those tissues become tolerant. You see a lot more movement happening, and then you can you can be in a movement environment all day long. But what you'll find is that you're probably a little tired at the end of the day. Guess what? You're supposed to be tired when you go to bed. That's how you're supposed to feel. Yeah, nothing wrong with being exhausted at the end of the night. I mean, I feel like the whole movement thing is one of those social norms. Is there any other social norm you guys are trying to disprove over the next decade and really create change? No, I think um, we have seen um, – that a lot of people, I think, are struggling. We're in this really strange uh, situation where our friends are having a hard time downregulating. So I live in Marin, Northern California, and we were rated the most healthy county in California for years and years and years. And now we're not. Now we're number two. And that's because of the chronic drinking that happens in our communities among adults. And, and I don't know what it is, but uh, we see even just as a, as a small N of maybe 30 that there's a lot of wine consumed at night as part of uh, parents trying to downregulate and turn off. And what's interesting is when we extrapolate out, we see that this sort of you know, depressant stimulant cycle happens at almost all levels of professional sports and in the military. We see in the military, for example, sometimes it looks like Ambien and bulletproof coffee, you know, and that some of my my ninja soldiers have to literally take, you know, they take two Ambien, go to bed, wake up, take two more Ambien, sleep another four hours. Um, you know, Ambien is one of the dirtiest secrets in professional sports, and that we're seeing that athletes are taking Adderall in the morning. They have a therapeutic use exemption for Adderall, and then they can't sleep, so they have to take, you know, Ambien at night, plus all the coffee during the day, and then they're plus the alcohol trying to, and really people are just trying to solve the biological imperative of I need to go to sleep and I don't know how to do that. And I think ultimately we're going to have to have conversations of unplugging and downregulation in really sustainable and easy ways, you know? And, um, you know, one of the reasons we really like the 10 minutes of soft tissue work, just rolling out on a roller or a ball before you go to bed is it has a large parasympathetic input to the body. And it, it, if you've ever had a massage before, you know, you know that when you stand up from the massage, you feel, really sleepy and really groggy. Your voice is really low. And the last thing you want to do is go for a one rep max snatch PR or, or fight, right? It's not what you do. You just you feel so chill. And that soft tissue work is one of the ways that we can start to activate aspects of our nervous system where we get down regulation. So we've got to give people alternatives. We can't say, you know, one of the nice things about our, the work we do is we get to go into a lot of crazy environments and, we are out at the Marine Aviation's Weapons Tactical School. We go out there a couple times a year. In Yuma, it's basically top gun for the Marine Corps. And, you know, and, and if I stand in front of those extraordinary um, you know, tactical athletes and say, okay, everyone sleep more, you know, you know I'm going to see 500 people flip me off secretly. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, well, how, you know, how much sleep does everyone need to get? And everyone's like, you know, I'm like, you need to sleep more, just sleep more, it's all the problem. And so, but they can't sleep more. Their job doesn't allow them. So, you know what we we have to be realists around that, and that's where we're. You know, we, we instead we say, hey, let's control what we can control. Let's control sleep density. Let's let's give you strategies 
Instead of just lecturing you, let's show you that there are really simple strategies to employ that don't cost a lot and are, are quick and effective. And what we've found is that for us, we want our athletes to do all of their soft tissue work before they go to bed. Just don't do it in the gym. Stop laying down on the ground and rolling in the gym. That's not what the gym is for. The gym is for movement training and, and mechanics and then save your soft tissue work for when you get home. And then that's a simple 10-minute behavior. And we found that 10 minutes was, uh, was a, a sufficient length of time to actually have an impact, but also sufficiently short that people could always make sure that they had 10 minutes. Like everyone has 10 minutes. And the 10 minutes before you go to the bedroom, you know, there's a, there's a little, uh, you, know, you know, preface in there, right? But the 10 minutes before you go to the bedroom, you'll find that there's nothing good going on in your house. You're not working. You're watching TV, you're on Facebook, you're like, you're reading like, so that's the time to where you can double up and you'll find that then this intervention isn't one more thing you have to do. It's one more thing you get to do. And that's a really important idea. Yeah, no, I love that 10 minute approach there just before bed. And I mean, some of your rolling sessions, uh, what is it? Mobilitywad.com, the website. Yeah. Yeah. You've got some awesome stuff there. I've been following it. You're, you're turning my head upside down though. So in the morning, wake up uh, early, I get downstairs, I do my breath work and then I do some deep tissue foam rolling. Should I avoid that just prior to training? Yeah. I would, I would say that's not the best use of your time unless, and here's the caveat, something hurts, man, man, my right hip will not let go. Smash on it for a couple minutes. Right. Okay. You know, like, hey, I, I take a step and my, my foot's really sore. Like, no, go address that. But what we find is that that is not the best use of your time. I guarantee you no MMA fighter ever rolls before they go fight. No one does. Yeah. When I watch, you know, NFL, maybe guys, are they're hitting something that feels stiff, but they're not rolling the whole bodies, right? And um, But so they're, you'd be better off, you know, doing sun salutation or a hip opener sequence or moving more, right? But make it more movement-based. You know, we like, uh, we, we are advocates of cold water immersion, not for injury, but, um, that's when we take our cold showers. That's when we take our, uh, ice bath first thing in the morning. It's as far away from the training as we can get typically for us, you know, cause we train in the afternoon typically. So we try to put that cold water immersion as far away from the training stimulus as we can. So we don't disrupt the adaptation response. And for us, that happens to be first thing in the morning. That's awesome. I got you. I know you mentioned Brian McKenzie, some other things. What's your breath work practice like? Well, the breath stuff has been remarkable. And in just full disclosure, this is how I got to it. You know, a few years ago, I switched from sort of being a strength athlete or just, you know, training hard uh, back into a little bit more competitive paddling environment. And which meant that I was switching. I've been a paddler and professional paddler my whole life. But I started racing again, and in the shortest race I do is about an hour and a half, maybe two hours. And so it's important to understand that um, that's an aerobic athlete. So I really started changing my programming. You know, I was, you know, it turns out my good friend Matt Vincent said once, someone asked him, like, well, how do you get strong? He's like, just lift heavy, squat heavy once a week for 10 years, and let me know what happens. And that's what I've been doing. I've been squatting heavy, deadlifting heavy once or twice a week for over a decade, you know, probably close to 14 years now, really in earnest regularly. And, you know, I started to get heavier and heavier. Like you can't, you know, as I was getting stronger, I was getting, you know, my body fat was still under 9%, still under 8%. But lo and behold, my ass was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was getting that old man thickness, you know, because I just, <laughs> like when you deadlift 600 pounds, that's what happens, right? 
And so um, what ended up happening is I started switching my, my programming more to saying, hey, look, I'm not going to be able to be really strong. I'm not a strength athlete like these other people. And I don't compete in strength athletics. So I'm probably strong enough, but my aerobic engine could definitely stand to be much more developed. And as I started working on that aerobic engine, I started thinking a lot more differently about the efficiency of the breathing mechanism, right? Looking at the spine, not only as the container for the nervous system and as the chassis for the big engines of the hip and shoulder, but really as the mechanism that held the diaphragm and the pelvic floor and was the respiration mechanism. And, um, you know, lo and behold, that, that leads me to, you know, thinking critically. And we had always been kind of talking about breathing a little bit. But then simultaneously, um, you know, Wim Hof pops up on the scene. And it turns out that Laird Hamilton had been using Wim Hof stuff forever. And Brian, started, Brian McKenzie started working with Laird Hamilton. And then I got sucked into the Brian Laird vortex. And my mind was blown a little bit of realizing how much efficiency could be gained by you know, thinking about breathing mechanics by optimizing breathing mechanics and breathing strategies. And so now, uh, fast forward a couple years later, and, you know, we've seen that we have this sort of through line of breathing. So in the morning when we do our breathing exercise, you know, that's just about nervous system recovery as it is about making sure that my breathing mechanics are on point for later on during the day, which is just as, you know, I mean, just choose something that matters to you around this, right? And what we're finding now is that in this practice of breathing, we are largely able to take the, the, the aerobic efficiency, the aerobic limitations off the table, that a lot of our athletes now who have been doing this kind of style of breathing and thinking about breathing mechanical efficiency we're no longer limited by the lungs. We're limited by our ability to generate force. Like we, we're getting enough O2 and scrubbing enough CO2, but we're literally just not physically strong enough to be able to work at those aerobic thresholds anymore, which is really interesting, right? Like my legs blow out on the rower long before my lungs blow out on the rower. And, um, and so, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to work this in. I would say one of the things that I appreciate about Wim Hof is that he really gave us very simple interventions to begin a conversation about upregulation. You know, that his breathing mechanism, which is free and on the internet, it's a really simple strategy. You know, it takes eight to 10 minutes. It's such a beautiful entree in. And it turned out for my wife and I, it was the meditation we were looking for. This mechanical breathing was the meditation practice that we'd been searching for. Laird Hamilton starts to tool it up and down and all of a sudden, He's doing all this work in the pool. So using the breathing strategies, using, you know, doing heavy carries and carrying dumbbells and jumping off the bottom and sort of forcing the breathing consciousness through, through workouts in the pool, then Brian starts tweaking it and a little bit further and he's going another direction of optimizing the physiology and trying to reset he, Brian McKenzie has just signed, um, become a, like an associate at Stanford where they're doing long-term research around looking at uh, stress, looking at um, sort of hypervigilance and CO2 tolerance. So there's a lot of really interesting research going on there. We realized that we could optimize the breathing to even help us downregulate when we're doing soft tissue work. So we can optimize the breathing into some of our soft tissue strategies. And, you know, what we were hearing for a long time is, you know, like someone like Gray Cook of Functional Movement Systems was saying, you know, hey, if you, if you can't breathe in a position, you don't own a position. And we had forever been saying, you know, if, if you can't breathe while you're mobilizing, you, you know, you can't take a full breath and you're going too deep. Well, all of a sudden we started to use this ventilation 
as a as a benchmark for around maintaining positional competence. So you know, we can establish what we think are guidelines and benchmarks for how much air you can move in and out. And then I can test and assess the, the robustness of your position by your ability to maintain the integrity of that breathing volume. So if you, if you stand up, squeeze your butt, get organized, and I have you take a breath, you know, maximal breath in, that's what we call peak working volume. Now, if I say overhead squat, just your body weight with your arms over your head, you should be able to maintain 90% of that original breathing volume. And to the extent that you can't, it's because your system is being compromised by your tight hips or your stiff thoracic spine or your crappy overhead position. And now we start to see and value positions as rate limiters on your aerobic function, which is interesting because suddenly we can see that why people are maybe giving away force on the bike because they've been bad positions. And we see that with their neck cranked back, they can't breathe as efficiently. And so they're giving aerobic power as they're, as they're training. And it really just gave us this another tool to evaluate the robustness of shape and position while simultaneously working to improve breathing efficiency and downregulation and central nervous system recovery. So there's a lot going on in there, but it all comes down to things that people have been talking about for thousands of years. And we're really grateful for Wim Hof and Laird Hamilton to bring to our attention. Yeah, no, the work around there and, and just some of the the changes you'll see, it, it's, it's unbelievable once you incorporate that breath work. You mentioned Laird Hamilton a bunch. Is he one of the more amazing athletes you've worked with? Uh, well, here's the deal. Um, Laird is an extraordinary human being. He's an amazing father. Um, he's an innovator. He's a really, really incredible friend. Um, and he's also a mutant. He is a stinking <laughs> mutant. And it's, you know, and I'm, I feel like it's interesting. Um, I don't have a lot of people that I chase. I just, you know, I'm kind of my own beat to walk my own drum, my own thing. But he's exactly 10 years older than I am. And I'm chasing Laird Hamilton. You know, and the problem is that I'll never catch that guy. You know, he people forget that he did um, this thing they called the Hawaii Five O. They paddled between all the islands consecutively, and then rode bikes across the all island to the next paddle. And they did that straight five days. And he did ride across America, the race race on a bike across America. And you know, he he's just this really incredible, incredible athlete who has this training age that is freakishly freakishly old you know and, and of course he's married to gabrielle reese and gabby's not a really bad athlete herself <laughs> and um and so you know around that what you see is that um you know, laird has figured out ways to create practices that are just streamlined and automatic so it's again it's not he doesn't have to go to the gym he's got a gym at house like we all can have we all have a, we have a kettlebell at the house and pull bar you know he's figured out ways that he can integrate the breathing in the cold water so that it, it doesn't, he doesn't have to drive down to the, to the, um, you know, the uh, cryo chamber twice a week. He can get cold every day, and you know, and we're, and th this is something really to take away at. And 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 he has found a whole bunch of interesting ways that allow him to continue to work at really strange capacities, even though he's 54 years old, right? And I think that that's what's really amazing. Um, you know, he just got back from, I just, we were just chatting yesterday and he just got back from Peru and, uh, you know, where he was chasing these gigantic waves. He rode a, like a three mile wave that was six and a half minutes long, you know, open ocean wave. And he was doing 36 miles an hour. And what, what I'll tell you is I, I don't know the last time you held a squat going 36 miles an hour for six and a half minutes, but, uh, you have to train for that and be ready for that. And, and I think, you know, while, 
I'm no Laird Hamilton or ever will be. What I can see is that he's playing a game about trying to maintain function into his 90s, into his hundreds. And, you know, I, we, uh, one of the favorite books that Juliet and I, my wife and I have read in a long time is called Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. And, you know, one of the interesting things about uh, this book is he, he points out that it's, it's about how we sort of make assumptions about our capacities that sometimes get us into trouble. And it turns out if you fall into this demographic, you're a white male between 35 and 50 years old, the chances of you dying in Hawaii are like 500% higher than anyone else. Because you remember what it felt like to be 20, yet you don't train, you're inflexible, you're not aerobically fit, and you end up <laughs> doing something stupid, like I can swim that, or I can jump <laughs> over that, you know, and then you end up dying. And, you know, I think what's interesting now when you look at where we're going sort of from this 36,000 foot view, we're not necessarily doing the right things. I think we're seeing generally that we're becoming fatter and a little bit less active. And, and I don't think that's anyone's fault. I think that's, you know, these, this kind of, you know, stepwise process of some of the foods we've been eating and been told that are okay. You know, I mean, you know, how many bowls of cereal did I eat as a child? I mean, all the cereal, right? I just didn't know. My parents didn't know. Just, you know, that was, we ate, we lived on cereal. And, um, you know, I think when we aggregate the fact that we aren't necessarily doing the right things, women are tearing their ACLs at eight, almost eight to 10 times the rate of men. You know, so what's going on there? What, you know, how is low back pain being managed in chronic pain in America right now? Terribly. We have, you know, we have drugs on the TV that are helping us not to get constipated from the opiates that we're taking. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're right. So I, I you know, there, I think we have some serious cultural issues that are complex in nature that we're going to have to unravel and we're going to have to start earlier, but simultaneously, you know, according to people like Harari, who wrote Sapiens and then Homo Deus, Homo Do, is that we're going to have to come to grips with the fact that when most of us are not going to die early, that we've taken care of some of the early death causalities. And most of us are going to be 80 or 90 years old. And the question we should start asking right now is, what things do we need to start doing today so that we don't just survive our 70s and 80s and 90s, but we really are living well into our 70s, 80s, and 90s. Because the chances are we are going to be 100, and a lot more of us are going to be 80 or 90 because we have knee replacements and hip replacements and heart valve replacements and amazing drugs. And But the real question is, what are we doing today that leads us to a, a case where we're, we're you know, going to be functional? And that means that we really have to think differently about some of the choices we're making sort of inadvertently or subconsciously. And, and it doesn't have to be, it's not shame on us, but just we need to be a little more conscious about it and, and can start with sleep. Or drinking some water or, you know, not not smoking. <laughs> no, I love how you frame that question. And you mentioned chasing Laird. He's one of the few people you do chase. What are you working towards personally? I mean, what is ideal happiness, health for you? Well, I tell you, um, you know, as, you know, a 44-year-old man, I'm, you know, I think I'm probably coming to grips with my ego a little bit better than I was in my 30s and 20s. <laughs> and, um your, your identification and, and thinking about success, you know, changes your definition of success changes. And, you know, my wife and I about uh, four years ago made this kind of cognitive switch where we said, Hey, look, we should be running everything through a single filter. And that is how do we get our family 
to have spend more time together on the beach or playing. And so suddenly we really started to be very clear about what that meant. And that means we started saying no to a lot more things. We started, you know, making decisions business-wise and personally about, you know, really protecting the time we could and creating opportunity to play with our kids more, right? And, you know, it's, I think for entrepreneurs and I, you know, I, I struggle to think of myself as an entrepreneur, but in people who are working really hard, to be successful, what we find is that there's, we don't know anyone who doesn't fall into the startup trap a little bit where, you know, you, you have to grind and you have to, you can't say no to anything and you travel and, and suddenly you, um, you know, you, you get into a place where you're not very healthy and it's not very sustainable and your relationships suffer and you, you haven't invested in your friendships and you, you don't have, you know, these reserves and you're basically driving your train, you know, to the end of the track and you don't realize that there are breaks. And, um, you know, so at some point you have to grind and then you have to realize that you don't have to push as hard and that you, the conversations start to become very, very different. So, you know, Juliet and I realized that we still have, and the reason I mentioned Juliet is she's the CEO of Mobility Wad, and is that, you know, we realized we have a lot more work to do and a lot of, of projects we're trying to get to while simultaneously really trying to recognize that this is it, this is the shock. And, you know, and if we wasted our 20, 20 years of grinding and then we, our kids went to college and we drive a nice car, but you know, our health is shit and we don't sleep and our relationship isn't good, then it really doesn't matter very much. So, you know, I think fortunately for Juliet and I, we were, um, we were both um, children of single working mothers which means we were pretty critically poor at times in our life, very, very poor. And then we were both professional river guides. And during those times as professional river guides, it didn't take a lot of money to travel and boat and be successful and eat well. You know, like, you know, chicken breasts and salad is cheap. And, you know, when you're sleeping outside in a parking lot, you know, underneath or on, on the bus, you just realize you don't need very much. And, you know, I think largely we both recognize that we're still deeply kind of dirtbag river guides who are, you know, always critically poor. And it's just now that we have health insurance, you know, our, our dream, you know, ultimately is that when we kick our kids out of the, out of the, col- out of the door to go to college, we're going to shut the sprinter van door and we're going to go park in Yosemite you know, and read books and hike and boat and basically be the same people we were when we were 20s, but plus, plus health insurance. <laughs> no, I love that approach. That is absolutely awesome. And I know you mentioned tying in the family. You guys just got back uh, from doing a little work over in Europe. You want to talk about what you have going on coming up with uh, how to control when you're on these flights all the time? Well, I appreciate that. You know, um, you, you know, one of the things that we try to do is uh, we just try to solve the problems that are in front of us or take a crack at improving. You know, my, my daughter plays volleyball and we work with a lot of really high level volleyball players and uh, there's this really great idea of called improving the ball. So the ball, the ball's coming to you, and it, and your job is just to improve the ball, right? You don't. It doesn't have to be the best shot in the world, or the best pass. You just have to make it better than when you got it. And and some of the problems that we're solving, a lot of us are working towards these problems. But I'll tell you what, the one of the biggest ones that we see in front of us is that tr- travel has become ubiquitous with sort of the modern business experience, and where you know, we have a couple men in our um, in our inner circle, these families near us, and they have to do a lot of traveling. And we see it 
eat them alive. And there was a time, you know, just five years ago when I was traveling, you know, you know, probably six, seven days a month easily. And I was, you know, I was getting regularly, I was getting, you know, less than six hours of sleep, four days a week, you know, and then I'd sleep a week and then four days a week, no, no sleep. And, you know, my hair fell out. I got skinny, I got weak. And, uh, you know, I was just on a, I was on a collision course and, and more importantly, I came back from those jaunts and I was, I was crap to my family. You know, I was so tired that it was difficult for me to engage as a good father or as a good partner to my wife. And I would say that my experience is very common for the men and women who are have to travel for business. And one of the things that we realize is that we can apply a lot of our thinking about professional sports and, 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 and the management around stress physiology and apply that to airplane travel. So we have a book coming out this fall called Flight Plan, which is really about how to travel well, arrive intact, and actually come back so that you're intact so that you don't have to spend five days recovering where you're, you know, you're, you've lost training, you've lost function, you've lost, you know, connection with your family. And instead you can come back and, and sort of see these as, as, as a, an opportunity to thrive. So, you know, you know, we, we put that to the test all the time because we still get to travel for work. And you'll notice I said, I didn't say have to travel. We get to travel for work and, you know, we're, we're testing our theories all the time. And, you know, and one of the theories that, you know, my, we have a good friend named Matt Lalonde who is a, He's a you know lipid bio bio researcher out of Harvard, and uh, we were talking about a blood panel I had a long time ago, many years ago. And he was like, "Kelly, it's really simple. When you are traveling, you can't drink wine and you can't eat cookies." And I was like, "Fuck you, Matt. You are like, sorry about the swear, but I literally was like, you know, you don't know me. Like that's how I survived travel with cookies and wine." And he was like, "Bro, you are such a stressed animal, and when you're dumping that stuff in on top of it." it's really wrecking your blood panel and you're not doing yourself any favors and you're making your sleep more difficult and you're making your training more difficult and it's reflecting in your numbers. And, um, you know, and I was like, well, shoot, you know, like I thought that I needed that glass of wine to come down, but it turned out, you know, in those stress states, that was when it was more important to be on the breathing practice, more important to do the soft tissue in those stressed environments, you know, I have to dial down a little bit more. When I travel, man, there's there's not a lot of carbohydrate in my diet when I'm on the airplane and not moving. You know what I mean? And there are little behavior tricks around chronobiology and, and sleep optimization and things that we find that really help people come back and still feel like human beings. Oh my gosh, just so many valuable takeaways just in that few minutes you just went on there. I absolutely love hearing that. Cannot wait to check that book out with someone who's got a ton of travel coming up the next six months. Really looking forward to that. So yeah, and you can't, you, and you know, and that's the problem. It's you, you can't get around that. So how do we, how do we work within the confines? And again, there's someone that comes down to, well, how do I control what I can control? You know, and, and some of it is, you know, we have interviews with people like Dave Asbury and and uh, Kerry Walsh and Mark Verstegen and like some of the, you know, the best coaches and athletes in the world talking about how they manage this with their teams and themselves, because, you know, it's all, it's on the minds of everyone who has to go and perform. And if you're traveling for business, that's the same thing. You have to go and perform. So let's, let's tweak the things that we can control and then we won't work. We won't worry about the things we can't control. That is awesome. So Dr. Kelly Starrett, uh, where can my listeners stay connected with you? We are at MobilityWOD, and that's mobility and then WOD, which is workout of the day. And we're on Twitter and Instagram. And, you know, if you've ever 
you know, one of the things that we're really proud of is that we have created a platform on mobilitywad.com where there's daily follow along videos where you can actually, with a ball and a band, you know, play along and begin to think about, you know, your position and mechanics. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of, uh, writing and videos. I think we have 2,300 videos on the site starring yours truly about, you know, simple things like, Hey, my knee hurts. I have foot pain. Hey, my arch collapses. How do I address those things? You know? And so, uh, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to do. And we're, we're constantly in a fight with ourselves to be smarter and refine that, that, that message. Yeah, no, your, your online stuff is something I resort to all the time. Anyone who knows me at my home gym, I've got the supple leopard laid out right there. So that's been oh. a tremendous resource for me, but Kelly, thank you so much for joining us on what got you there. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.